AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky. I'm a transplanted pathologist at Northwestern. And uh, welcome to AJT Highlights, the monthly podcast. This is December's podcast. And with me today, as always, is Roz Manon, who is now going to be at Nebraska. As... But I have another six weeks here, so okay. still, Just, at, still getting still paid. At still at Alabama, but we'll be at University of Nebraska, my um, alma mater, um, after I think the first of the year, right? We're also very excited today. We have a guest reviewer, uh, John Kabashigawa, who I think everyone knows is a uh, was a board member for AST, and he's a expert in cardiac transplantation. And so this, we asked John to join us because there are two uh, really important heart transplant papers, and uh, we thought Roz and I wouldn't do it, either of those enough uh, service on this podcast. And John, uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Pleasure. Great. So um, as always, I'm going to let me just briefly go over. We have four papers today, two heart transplant, two liver, and uh, of those liver, there's one adult and one pediatric. So just to name the papers, the first one is by Magneta et al., the impact of the 2016 revision of U.S. pediatric heart allocation policy on weightless characteristics and outcomes. And there's an editorial there. And then the next heart transplant paper is by Lentine et al., which is entitled Prescription Opioid Use Before and After Heart Transplant Associations with Post-Transplant Outcomes. And then the next paper will be by Godfrey et al., The Decreasing Predictive Power of MELD in an Era of Changing Etiology of Liver Disease. And then the uh, with an editorial there. And then the final paper is by Swenson et al., Impact of the Pediatric End-Stage Liver Disease PELD growth failure thresholds on mortality among pediatric liver transplant candidates. Okay, so um, John, we're gonna start with your first paper, which is the heart allocation paper. If you could review that for us and maybe we'll have a little time to discuss it. Right, Uh, thank you so much, Josh and Roz, for uh, having me today. So I'd like to uh, discuss the uh, paper impact of the 2016 revision of US pediatric heart allocation policy on waitlist characteristics and outcome. Let me give a very brief uh, background. Uh, Pediatric heart transplant candidates face the highest mortality risk of all solid organ transplant candidates. Congenital heart disease, which is a major risk factor for increased waitlist mortality, currently comprises half of all listings. Now, in response to this high waitlist mortality in March 2016, the OPTN determined that candidates with cardiomyopathy on high-dose inotropes would be downgraded to status 1B, whereas congenital heart disease candidates requiring high-dose inotropes and any candidates supported with mechanical circuitry support or on a ventilator would remain eligible for status 1A listing. And status 1A listing is the highest and most urgent uh, category we have. Now, in the study by Magneta and colleagues, all patients less than 18 years old listed for heart transplant in the OPTN database between December 2011 and June 2018 were reviewed. Candidates were stratified according to listing before, meaning era one, or after era two, the data policy enactment 
on March 2016. 2,400 patients were in era one, 1,400 patients were in era two, so quite a few patients. Weightless mortality and post-transplant survival were analyzed. Now here are the results. Comparing era one before the policy change to era, comparing era two after the policy change to era one before the policy change, weightless mortality overall and among status 1A candidates, including congenital heart disease patients, were unchanged. Of important note, status 1A listing exceptions, mostly for dilated cardiomyopathy candidates, increased by 13-fold. Ventricular assist device use also increased among dilated cardiomyopathy candidates, enabling them to become status 1A as well. Both findings increased the number of status 1A patients. The authors concluded that the current allocation policy has increased congenital heart disease status 1 representation, but has not improved their weightless mortality. It appears that excessive dilated cardiomyopathy status 1A listing exceptions and continued status 1A prioritization of children on stable VADs potentially diminish the intended benefit of policy revision. So what do I take away from this? Well, there are two, I think, issues or takeaways to, to learn from this. And that is that although we spend a great deal of time and thought to donor heart allocation policies, we're not always able to accurately predict the intended outcome of policy change. And in this uh, study, this review of the new uh, policy allocation, there are mainly two reasons for this. Number one, well, we are all advocates for our patients and will do whatever to optimize their outcomes. So previously, uh, cardiomyopathy that were dependent on onotropes were listed as status A before the policy change. And with the policy change, they were downgraded to status 1B, which is likely the reason for more status 1A exceptions for these patients. In other words, the cardiomyopathy patients on high-dose onotropes were still very sick, and their uh, transplant cardiologists felt that they should be put back into that status 1A category. Uh, and it's, it is likely that these status 1A exceptions for dilated cardiomyopathy patients negatively impacted the potential benefits of this 2016 allocation policy change. Now, the second big reason, uh, I believe, too, is that uh, this policy allowed uh, children with ventricular assist devices to maintain status 1A indefinitely. This is in contrast to the adult policies, which limits uh, the 1A stable uh, VAD patients to only 30 days of the highest urgency time. And that's because uh, the status 1A patients uh, who are on uh, bad support actually are very stable, and they actually are not as sick as uh, patients on high-dose onotropes or on temporary assist devices. In adult uh, transplantation, uh, we allow VAD patients to be on the status 1A or the highest category only if there are complications, which would uh, increase their risk of morbidity and mortality. That kind of makes sense in a way. And perhaps the pediatric uh, policy could learn from this as well. Now, one of the things that we have done in adults is also we've taken this uh, status 1A category, and we become a little bit more granular in this. We divided that status 1A into three categories. The highest would be biventricular heart failure on ECMO support, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or on biventricular assist devices. 
The status two would be temporary assist devices and status three would be high dose onotropes. In this manner, we have been able to truly transplant the sickest patients and uh, actually get the best uh, uh, survival benefit, if you will, patients who would have no chance at survival and yet they would walk out the front door. So hopefully the pediatric uh, group can learn from what the adults have done. But also I think uh, they may need someone of a national review board to enhance the uniformity and decrease this uh, geographic variation of uh, exceptions. And uh, I think that will also uh, level the playing field for all dilated cardiomyopathy patients. Why don't I stop here for comments? That, that's really interesting. I was, um, you know, when we get to the last paper, which is talks about some of the discrepancies between pediatric and adult liver transplant, it, it feels a little bit like the opposite, where there's pediatric group has sort of some disadvantages to adults. And it seems like maybe from what I'm gathering from you is that the pediatrics stay at this 1A forever and they, that might not, I guess, from the heart compared to adults is what you're saying. There's a limit as to how long a heart transplant patient stays at 1A, an adult patient. So is, is there a benefit in more of a benefit in pediatrics? Is there, do you know the reason for that? Or Well, what happened, I, I believe, is that um, when this um, new policy was put into place, there was only old data that could be um, uh, searched at that point, and that was using the older ventricular assist device uh, devices. Uh, and the, the yeah. older devices actually were more or less crude. They had a lot of side effects, a lot of potential strokes, GI bleeding, pump yeah. thrombosis, and that's why they kept them all at status 1A. Uh, now, in the interim time, you know, we've gotten much better devices, and so now these... Um, Patients who are on VADs are much more stable with much lower yeah. risk for stroke and side effects. Yeah, that makes sense. That, that does. Now, thanks for clarifying that. Well, oh. yeah, and you know, I, it's, I wonder who's going to help take the lead here because I think this is a vulnerable patient population and, and no one wants to see a, ch a child dying, but it sounds like the adult community has really, a cardiac community has already come to an agreement of, of this of an approach, and I don't know if that's, uh, you know, how to liaise that. It's, I, I obviously, I don't have another project I can take on, but but certainly, and you know, we know the difficulty in changing allocation policy for sure, and I hope that these data are looked at carefully and recognized. They're, they're dismal, and it's upsetting to see that, but perhaps you as a leader in this field can get everybody on the same page. Yeah, hopefully so, and the pediatrics are different in the sense that, uh, as I mentioned, over half the listings are from congenital heart disease. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, a lot of these patients, you just cannot put a VAT in because... Yeah, because of the anatomy. Maybe. Anatomy, mm -hmm. yeah, it's just mm -hmm. way, way different. Very different. And so they are being disadvantaged, and that's why they were put into a separate category. And, and that can still be done also, perhaps right. in a status too, with broader sharing. Yeah. Well, Great. I also um, didn't know if you had any comment about geographic variation. I think that's alluded to as well. Is there anything you could say about that, whether it's adult or pediatric um, heart allocation? Yes, we, what we do know too is that uh, there is a significant amount of geographic variation in terms of uh, donor allocations, who's getting the donor hearts. And a lot depends uh, on um, the disparity in terms of how close programs are and the competition that they have for these donor organs. And, and I think that makes a big difference in terms of uh, status exceptions.
having their patients uh, be getting to a higher category in order to have uh, a chance at getting a donor organ. Mm. If you're in um, regions where there's less competition per se, you know, there's less urgency to push your patient forward, mainly because you will get a donor uh, organ mm. at that time. Um, and that's why we were, that's why, you know, I was mentioning about a possible central um, review board, uh, one that is, in, and uh, that would review all exceptions. And that way there would be consistency uh, in terms of uh, approving uh, these mm -hmm. exceptions across the board and hopefully get around the geographic uh, variations. Mm. Yeah, no, we've, we've done that in liver with a, with a national liver review board and it's already been, I think, fairly positive. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's unusual that the liver is first in these things, but here we are, this somehow <laughs> liver is taking a lead. On. So we usually That's following coattails. Anyway, let's uh, go into your next paper, which actually uh, realize you're an author on the opioid use paper. Maybe you could just briefly talk about that one. Yes, uh, this is a, a paper by Krista uh, Lantine uh, and colleagues, uh, Prescription Opioid Use Before and After Heart Transplant Associations with Post-Transplant Outcomes. Well, in the United States and internationally, the epidemic of prescription opioid use and abuse is a critical health concern. Opioid use in heart failure patients is not actually uncommon. And in one cohort, nearly 25% of patients hospitalized with decompensated heart failure had an opioid prescription on admission. Now this paper by Lentine and colleagues is a retrospective study using linked data from the SRTR and billing claims from a large nationwide US pharmaceutical claims data warehouse that collects prescription drug fill, fills, including self-paid bills and those reimbursed by private and public payers. Now the study included more than 13,000 heart transplant recipients undergoing heart transplant between 20, uh, 2007 and 2016, and who had one year of pre-transplant pharmacy fill records in the pharmaceutical data warehouse and available post-transplant data in the SRTR database. Opioid use was normalized as annual morphine equivalents, and recipients were grouped according to levels of opioid use, levels one through four, level four being the highest use at more than 1,000 milliequivalents of morphine per year. Now here were the results, and these were the key findings. 40% of the cohort filled an opioid prescription before transplant. You know, that's quite a, quite a large number. Pre-transplant prescription opioid use was associated with a 33% increased risk of death over the first year post-transplant. Post-transplant prescription opioid use in the first year had an even stronger prognostic significance with higher opioid use bearing graded associations with increased mortality. Now we're talking about post-transplant opioid use. And finally, the presence of a ventricular assist device prior to transplant was associated with an 83% greater likelihood of opioid prescriptions. And so the authors uh, concluded uh, that while associations may, in part, reflect underlying conditions or behaviors, history of opioid use is relevant in assessing and providing care to transplant candidates and recipients. All right, so my takeaway from this paper is that for now, these data suggest that heart transplant patients require high levels of opioid uh, use 
uh, prior to transplant warrant careful evaluation of pain management strategies, perhaps by multidisciplinary teams, including a pain management specialist, as well as focused monitoring of clinical status after transplant. Now, a big question does arise, you know, do we uh, allow patients who are on chronic opioid use to even undergo transplantation? And it's not to say that they are ineligible for transplant, but we do mandate, at least in my program and many other programs across the country, that pain management specialists see these patients to consult in order to wean these patients off opioid prior to transplantation. We also have them sign a contract, you know, if they have a history of opioid drug abuse, to stay abstinent and actually be enrolled in a uh, drug rehabilitation program. Now, we also realize, too, that the poor outcomes in uh, transplant recipients who, who use prescription opioids may reflect a comorbid uh, state associated with chronic pain or maybe even psychiatric conditions such as depression. So in addition, opioid use may be related to patient behaviors, and uh, these perhaps are drug-seeking behaviors, for example. And, and these behaviors are also associated with adverse outcomes, such as noncompliance, noncompliance with appointments, noncompliance with immunosuppressive medications, which uh, may increase the risk of complications. And as we see here, perhaps the reason for uh, increased risk of death after heart transplantation. I'll stop here for your comments. Yeah, but when I when I read this, John, I, it made me, I, I guess my question to you, it made me think about, you know, what what are what is sort of the standard in the heart transplant workup for patients on prescription opioids? You mentioned your center has a policy. Um, are you, is it your sense that other centers have similar policies? Um, but if they aren't, do you think they'll see these data and potentially change or modify their policies to be more uh, restrictive in, in this patient population in terms of transplant? Yes, uh, you know, I, I believe that most programs in the country um, do try to have patients on opioids, uh, medical reasons, stop opioids and uh, go on to other non-addicting type medications. Now the trouble and big factor is that many of our patients get transplanted as a status one. Mm. These are patients who are critically ill there's not enough time to wean them mm -hmm. off opioids. There's not enough time to have them sign a contract. So what do you do about those patients? And that is uh, literally up to the program uh, themselves. I can tell you what we do. We, we will consider these patients if they have uh, social support. And, and that is so important because, you know, if you don't have social support to help you deal with opioids afterwards, you know, make sure that uh, patients do enroll in a drug decaf, um, you know, detoxification type program if needed, uh, then there really is no no hope. And in fact, these are patients that will have noncompliance mm -hmm. and will, you know, reject their donor, donor hearts and even succumb to death as well. And it is our purpose as stewards of these donor organs to truly make, make sense that we give every patient an opportunity to survive. And so, um, you know, rather than to have a donor heart wasted because of noncompliance, you know, let's uh, go ahead and have uh, patients who will comply and will have a good chance of survival post-transplant. Mm. 
Oh, very interesting. Well, and I have to admit, I didn't realize the prevalence was as high in this population. And so I didn't know if it's compounded by depression or if they're on a VAD, they're having more pain. You know, I wasn't sure if that was why. Do you have a sense about this pain issue? Is this all pre-surgical chronic disease pain? Well, I, I can tell you that in the, the VAD population, there are many areas of pain. Okay. It's not only in the sternum, but it's also in the um, driveline insertion okay. site. Insertion site, okay. Yeah, you know, because you have a wire that's rubbing, right, going in yeah. and out. And yeah. That's why infectious, infections in the drivelines are so uh, prevalent. Prevalent. Yeah, uh, yeah. and it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's basically a risk for more infections uh, down the line. So. Yeah, I think uh, that that's where a lot of the pain, pain is coming from. Okay. Yeah, and there is a correlation too that you know uh, even in the fifth, uh, second to fifth years after transplant, there still is a high correlation of mortality, like a seventy percent increase in mortality for those that are in the highest level four use of uh, opioids, and uh, you know seventy percent increase in mortality, you know that's. Uh, that's shocking. Incredible. That's yeah. shocking. Yeah. Extremely high. Well, great. Thanks, John. Um, I think I we get uh, you off the hook now. Now we get yeah. real Josh Levitz. Although uh, I think we're going to get you back on the hook in future podcasts because uh, you did a wonderful job explaining all the issues that, um, especially for the for the audience here. So um, I'm going to finish with two papers. Um, the first one is by Godfrey et al from Houston, Texas, and it, the title is The Decreasing Predictive Power of MELD in an Era of Changing Etiology of Liver Disease. This is one of those papers that is going to be very highly cited for years to come, and I think will get everybody thinking about what we're doing now and potentially how we can prioritize patients a little bit better in the future. So basically what this group did is we know that MELD started in 2002 and that the most recent update was melt sodium in 2016, which has a little bit higher predictive value for weightless mortality. And just so, just to reorient anyone who's listening, that um, melt sodium now is basically it's the reason we use the the melt score is that it's predicting a 90-day weightless mortality. And so, the higher you are, the higher chance you're likely to die within 90 days, thus the uh, higher uh, sort of benefit of transplantation uh, compared to patients who are lower melt. However, we know that the disease, uh, the, or the population over the last um, 15, 20 years has really changed. Um, we're seeing a lot lower viral hepatitis and we're seeing older, sicker, higher melt patients with uh, non-alcoholic fatty and alcoholic liver disease. And so the question is, is MELD still, and MELD sodium even, still uh, predictive of mortality like it was back in 2002 when it was first instituted? And so they basically looked over the years um, at the C statistic for MELD and MELD sodium with 90-day mortality. And I, I think if um, you're looking at the paper, uh, if you want to look at it later, if you're listening to this podcast in your car or something, it, look at figure one, you can see that over time, 
the C statistic back in 2002 was was quite good at about 0.8 and uh, for meld and a little bit higher over time for meld sodium. And you can see that it's just declining pretty rapidly over time, where now we have an overall C statistic of, let's say, meld sodium of 0.72, which I think is okay. But, you know, if you're allocating livers with a C statistic that's dropping, there's some concern. And then they did this competing risk analysis and found that there was a the increasing relationship between meld and transplant over time did not mirror the relationship between meld and death. So, you know, that these discrepancies really are, are quite concerning. And so the authors took a deeper dive and said, well, why is the predictive power of meld and meld sodium declining over time? And they tried to hypothesize that it's the potentially the patient population is changing. So they looked at which groups of patients had this change in the C statistic. And if you look at table three, they looked at cholestatic uh, liver disease and autoimmune, and then they looked at hepatitis C because we know that patients are getting treated for hepatitis C over time and getting kind of healthier and maybe it's not as predictive. And then there's fatty liver and alcoholic cirrhosis, which we know are increasing, particularly fatty liver. Mm -hmm. And the two groups where the C statistic was declining most were fatty liver disease and alcoholic liver disease. And the ones where, where it was still pretty predictive was autoimmune liver disease and actually hepatitis C, it was still fairly predictive. But the patients that really meld sodium is, is not as predictive of their weightless mortality are those who have fatty liver and alcoholic liver disease, which is, you can say, well, it's a subset. It's not a subset. It's actually an increasing number. It's probably it's going to be, uh, you know, it's probably going to be two thirds to three quarters of our transplant patients hmm. moving forward. So this brings up, well, how is meld sodium doing currently? And we can say that for a high percentage of our patient population, it's the, the C statistic for weightless mortality and how we're allocating these livers is not great. And so what is the answer for that? That is the big question. There's other, there have been several predictive scores that have been published, several of them in AJT. One of them the authors noted, which I remember is called OAP, which is Optimized Prediction of Mortality Model. This is a paper a couple of years ago that fared better than uh, MELD and MELD sodium. Of course, you want predictive models that can predict pre-transplant and not, they, don't, they can't include post-transplant variables because once you've transplanted them, that doesn't help the pre-transplant allocation. Uh, David Goldberg right, wrote a nice editorial on this uh, paper in, in the, the accompanying uh, issue this, this month in December. And one of the things that, and also Nadim Mahmoud, who's also at Penn, one of the things that they try to understand why, why um, the C statistic is not good in patients with fatty liver disease is that meld sodium contains the original C, C statistic really was, uh, you know, that serum creatinine is a big, big part of this prediction. And if you look at fatty liver disease patients, they have a lot of intrinsic renal disease. And so it, it may just not correlate well with their weightless mortality because there's a higher prevalence of renal disease in that population that may not improve with transplant or may not correlate with the weightless mortality like hepatorenal syndrome in another patient. So that, that's one possibility. But again, I think this was this is really kind of a, a call to relook at this and try to maybe do some more tweaking that could 
reflect the scoring systems moving forward for the for the patient populations that we're going we're continuing to see um, over time. And so I don't know what's going to really come out of this, but I think it's one of these papers that is going to be a, a hallmark paper for people to, to really look at and look at the the allocation system and um, continue to evaluate these predictives, uh, the prediction of meld sodium as we go forward. And if it's really becoming worse and worse, something will have to change. So I'll stop there before we get to our last paper. Do you guys any comments? No, it's... I it's a really sort of a stunning paper and you wonder why someone hasn't done it before because it's, you know, it's just very thoughtful and, and somewhat straightforward. But again, I guess the, the driver I always thought with meld coming as a kidney physician is, is the creatinine and, and the renal dysfunction. So is the notion that, again, you said this, that renal dysfunction or or kidney disease in certain disease states may not correlate to outcomes. So I guess that was the point of the Mahmoud commentary was yeah. that, you know, metabolic associated liver disease, the renal failure may not track as a severity factor right. as much as with, I guess, hepatitis or autoimmune disease. I don't know if anybody's looked at that. That's kind of an interesting notion. And I guess you could, you could test yeah. that, but I agree in looking at these numbers as a, as a complete dilaton, it really looks kind of concerning. Yeah, no, yeah, you're absolutely right. The creatinine was included there mainly because when liver failure occurs, portal hypertension and sort of the idea was sort of built about around hepatorenal syndrome having such a high mortality. mortality. Mm. And but if we're, we're including a lot of patients now with chronic kidney disease, and the NAFLD patients have a higher prevalence of that, it, it may just not be as predictive of their mortality. Right, every, and maybe, the, base, the baseline of patients is already affected. In terms of the, you know, simultaneous liver kidney, does this, those were not included, right? No, those were, yeah, those were excluded. They, they were excluded so, right, okay. Yeah, but of course we have a, you know, a new policy. We're not, not even new right. now, it's been a couple of years. And, um, you know, that's a that's sort of another wrinkle in this. But I think for the, the larger population, this this, you know, I think it's going to it's harder. It, it's kind of harder to get a simultaneous liver kidney mm -hmm. transplant now or people being more careful about it with this safety net. So I think this issue becomes even more more of a concern moving forward is you almost want to be like meld without creatinine, you know, but yeah. sodium, you know, because sodium is really related to the portal hypertension aspect of it. Gotcha. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I think you're right. I think it needs it needs a deeper dive into those questions that the editorial brought up as to why this may be happening, and maybe the CKD component of it within the regular meld needs to be somehow factored in um, differently. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me finish with the last one, which is a pediatric paper. And I have to be honest, I tried to understand a little bit of this growth failure aspect of this um, that they're focusing on because it seems to be this is kind of the key point of this paper. This was this was done by the UCSF group, Swenson and all. Um, the impact of PELD growth failure thresholds on mortality among pediatric liver transplant candidates. I'd, I'd also be interested to hear your both of your um, input on this sort of growth failure issue in, in heart and kidney mm -hmm. transplant. But, but basically, um, PELD score is used for children up to age 11, where MELD is used 12 and above. 
And this is how um, uh, young children get prioritized on the transplant waitlist, and it includes bilirubin, INR, and albumin. So it's kind of the pelled without the, the albumin is replacing the creatinine. But you can get additional points for young age less than one year and also growth failure, which is basically the way they calculate this is that um, growth failure is defined as having a weight or height less than two standard deviations below the age and gender norm. So this is called a Z-score less than two. And the way that the uh, pediatrics does this is that they do this every three months. It's not a continuum. And so this is where this issue comes up. What the authors were looking at was they, I think they had just a, a clinical, clinically they've seen uh, patients that are in this growth failure gap, meaning they actually don't meet criteria to get an upgrade by this every three month growth failure, this um, less than two standard deviation growth failure mark, but they actually have a serial growth failure problem because they're being, this is being measured serially in the clinics. And so if it's only being looked at every three months, these patients have such high mortality, they're, the concern is that these, this is called a growth failure gap, meaning they're not upgradable, but they have growth failure in between the times that hmm. they're able to get those extra points. And this, it sounds sort of like, well, it's not, you know, when I was kind of reading about this, it, it seems like this is not a, you know, a significant percentage, but it actually is, I believe the um, percentage of patients in this growth failure gap where they're, where they're actually meeting criteria for growth failure, but not being able to get the points was about 15 to 20% of the, of the population, actually 17% in this growth failure gap. And so what does this mean is that those in the growth failure gap had a higher risk of weightless mortality than those without growth failure. Mm -hmm. And they had a higher risk of post-transplant mortality. And so basically if you're, if you have growth failure that you meet definitions by PELD, you get those exception points, you get to get transplanted earlier. Mm -hmm. If you don't have the growth failure problem, you just go by your own PELD, um, you're not as sick as those who have true growth failure. But if you're in this gap of 17% where you're not able to get this upgrade for several months, your risk of dying on the transplant risk is really high. So the, the authors um, really advocate to relook at these growth failure definitions and really try to say this needs to be like a PELD, meaning every time you do a PELD score, so you have your bilirubin, INR, and albumin, you should have a growth, a serial growth measurement added to that score and not waiting until the next time point. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's sort of the calling that they bring up here, that it would be, uh, I, I mean, easy in quotes to change the system to recalibrate it that way. And I, uh, I, I talked to some, some of my pediatric colleagues about this paper, and they, they agree. They've always said, well, these, these sort of growth failure gap are, they're really, you know, we're really waiting until the next, the next time where they can be, uh, points can be applied. And but some of these kids deteriorate very quickly over a few weeks. So seems to me like this is sort of a no brainer, but I'm sure it's, you know, in the world of allocation and, you know, uh, nothing's a no brainer to fix. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you, do you guys see, I guess maybe this is, 
I don't know if this is just a, a thing just seen in, in liver failure, but a deep, is there accountability for growth in pediatric uh, nephrology and, and, and cardiology? In term, is that included at all in your in the allocation? You know, when we um, took a look at the pediatric uh, allocation, uh, it is not, but it, it is uh, taken into account as a risk factor. To me, it more or less uh, relates to inflammation. When you have uh, malnutrition, you know, growth uh, dis discrepancies where you're not uh, increasing uh, your height and weight, uh, it is an inflamed uh, situation. And you had upregulation of many of the inflammatory cytokines. And this is what we actually do see in many of these disease states. And this uh, no doubt leads to more of a problem even after transplant. We see that in primary graft dysfunction, for example, mm -hmm. when the donor heart comes into an inflamed milieu. And, um, and that can create uh, issues early on and obviously lead to a cascade of rejection uh, episodes thereafter. So we do That's, take these uh, you know, incidences and characteristics quite seriously. It's sort of the correlate of frailty, sarcopenia in the adult population. <laughs> yeah. Very much children. so. Yeah. Yes, yeah. very much so. Because certainly in, in children, in, in, in kidney allocation, they're you know, they're the top 20%, but we don't, I don't believe we take into account size or, you know, limitations in size where growth failure is, is significant and growth hormone use is prevalent. And looking on table one, you know, I know you're in your car and you can't do that, but it looks like it's the youngest patients where yeah. the biggest gain in growth is in that first couple of years. And then this biliary atresia seems to be more prevalent as the cause of liver failure as opposed to other cirrhotic diseases or tumor. So again, I think it takes the community at large to make a recommendation. I mean, first of all, you have data. So now we, like in the heart papers, we now have data that's there and we just need some creative people that have a little time that, that can make an effort to bring this up to, to their UNOS committees, whether it's starting at a regional or a national level and saying this needs to be you know, updated because this, these, these are pretty shocking. I have to say today's papers have seemed to me of all the ones we've done the last couple of months seem to have the biggest public health impact in transplants. Yeah. So great to see the journal highlighting them and, and urging people to look at them because um, some of these results are really phenomenal, not in a good way, phenomenal. Yeah. Well, it's a uh, action. We're not doing good enough. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If they don't get published, nothing gets done. Yeah. You know, I think you bring up a good point, Roz, and, and you too, Josh, that individuals can make a difference, you know, getting to the table and uh, knowing what the, what the questions are, you know, what the uh, problems that exist. And only if you are in the trenches, do you really know what these uh, questions, are, you know, uh, face our patients. And, uh, you know, you all out there in, in your cars can make a difference by voicing uh, these issues uh, by either being at the table or at least uh, pointing it out to people who are who are there. Right. No better way to end than that, John. Thank you. And thank you for joining. Um, we'll definitely want to get you back in the future. I hope you enjoyed this. And uh, Roz, also, thank you. And um, I guess we will be joining you all for um, Happy New Year to everybody coming up because our next one will be out after the new year. Um, we're getting a lot of good responses again. Please, you know, tweet out or email us what, what you think of the podcast. If you'd like to see more of 
what we're doing by adding more people in. All right, well, John, thanks again for coming. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 